Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, in our 116th episode, the sixth of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I'm going to share with you my attempt at some medieval-style myth-making. If you like it, please shoot me a message. Just look for Vivian Catfield on Facebook or Twitter. I'm the only one in the world. Or you can send an email to Vivian Catfield, all one word, at Gmail, and I might write some more of them. Actually, I've been pondering the possibility of making a whole series of tales to perform at Renaissance festivals, and or if this story were chosen by you, the listeners, as your favorite at the end of the Season 2 contest, it might be expanded into a collection of stylistically similar tales. So, why did I decide that the time was right for a medieval tale? Well, other than the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has basically dragged the country back into medieval times this week, I'll take a moment for that burn to settle in. Okay, (laughs) moving on. I've been interested in medieval and renaissance tales for, gosh, probably my whole life. It's one of those things that just keeps popping up. When I was in high school, I had a really awesome English teacher who every year would arrange a sort of walking trip for her senior class through downtown in which each student would dress up in an outfit based on a character from the Canterbury Tales. Then we had to make an illuminated manuscript version of the tale in which we copied it out with calligraphy pens and drew illustrations in the margins. Last, at the end of each block, all the way from our high school at the north end of town to the courthouse right in the middle, we would stop and a couple of us would tell our tales in as close an approximation as we could get to a Chaucerian accent, uh, shaded, of course, by our normal uh, North Alabama ones. (laughs) I'm sure all of that was a sight to behold and hear. Nevertheless, we had a great time on our little pilgrimage my senior year, and after I became an English major, I kept reading and teaching Chaucer, and then Boccaccio's De Cameron, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, and so on, all the way up to what I consider the most popular modern descendant of those canonical works, J.K. Rowling's Tales of Beetle the Bard, which I think are an amazing and very enjoyable reminder that the telling of parable-style medieval and Renaissance tales remains relevant for the modern world. All of Rowling's stories are completely new, but they feel old in resonant ways. They have a sort of universal truth to them. And the sort of ending that allows an audience to draw its own conclusions as to what lessons might be learned from it. Thus, this week, I thought I would see if I could construct something along those lines. A medieval-style tale that felt fresh in what it has to say to us, I've purposefully left the potential lesson to be learned open uh, to your interpretation. Along the way, I incorporated some details about the history of the city of York, uh, formerly known as Ybor, until the 860s. There's more about that in the show notes for this week if you're interested. And also a glimpse into the history of one of the most tragic events ever in the city of York's history, the Jewish pogrom of 1190. If you've never heard of it, as I had not, until I began doing background research on the city to write this story, I highly encourage you to look into it through the links in the show notes. 
and through your own investigations. It is certainly a tragedy worth remembering. Pretty horrific stuff. Uh, last, I have a few links in the show notes about the mythology associated with wild boars and ash trees as they relate to the story and tie into the unusual patchwork quilt of the fascinating real-life history of York, a city that may not be the first to pop up in most Americans' minds when they think of Britain in the Middle Ages, but it probably should. All right. Tighten your girdles and pick up your magical staffs. Here we go to embark upon this week's decidedly medieval storytelling journey as I present The Wild Boar of Ebor, a short story by Vivian Catfield. Many centuries ago, before the ink had long been dry on the tale that gave life to Grendel, there lived three sisters in the wolds of Ebor. Their father was a shepherd, and having no sons to help him, he brought his three daughters up to tend their flocks as well as if they'd been boys. All three were bright, pretty girls who felt that there should be more to their lives than herding sheep. The eldest had a temper, and the youngest was vain. So they often lost patience and shirked their duties. But the middle sister, as is so often the case with middle sisters, was patient and kind. Thus, those duties left derelict by the other two usually fell to her. One evening, just before dusk, as the trio were guiding the sheep back to the pasture from a day of grazing, they saw an old crone run screaming out of the woods with a wild boar chasing after her. The woman was dressed in mud-stained rags from head to toe that a wraith would have been ashamed to be seen in. Her long gray hair, which was wound up in plates, had come undone and hung in lank, sweaty strings on both sides of her face. Spying the girls, she rushed toward them, flailing her arms and clutching a long staff in her bony fingers, the slobbering boar, hot on her heels behind. The crone ran straight into the midst of their flock of sheep and flopped onto the ground, throwing her faded and ratty cape over her. The sheep scattered, bleeding in all directions. The eldest sister went right and the youngest sister left, brandishing their shepherd's crooks in the air as they drove the sheep back together into a huddle around the old crone, who remained concealed under her cloak, still and gray as a boulder sticking out of the ground. Confused by all the hubbub, the boar stopped and snorted, pawing the ground. Then the middle sister rushed at the boar and smashed her crook over his hard head, shattering it to splinters and breaking off one of his tusks. Stunned, the boar fled away, squealing like a piglet, to hide his bloody face in the forest from whence he'd come. Once the sisters had calmed the sheep, the crone emerged from under her cloak, straightening her crooked back as she struggled to her feet with the help of her ashen staff. She embraced each of them and, in gratitude, offered to grant each one wish. The eldest sister it was skeptical of the crone's tattered appearance, nevertheless knew right away what her wish would be. Many winter nights, the eldest sister said, after we've taken our lambs to market and shorn their mother's wool to sell, I've laid awake wondering what it would be like to be the merchant who buys it, to lie upon a feather bed snuggled under a silk and velvet coverlet rather than one of straw and scratchy linen. 
counting my riches and my dreams. Don't you mean your husband's riches? The youngest sister implored. For how could a woman carry on such a business when no man would deal with her? She's quite right, Crone said. However, if it is riches you want, then it is riches you shall have, and the husband who must needs go with it. Remember, however, when he passes that many will come for his wealth, whether his wife be living or not. For that is what happened to me. This tattered cloak on my back is proof. Touch it and see. The youngest sister, who was afraid of the old crone's weathered face and croaking voice, declined. However, the middle sister took up the hem of the crone's cloak and examined the material. Sure enough, even though it was dirty and torn, the cloak was made of gray velvet trimmed in sable. The eldest sister, who was weary of elders warning her of life's perils, merely sighed with impatience and asked where she might find this mysterious fortune. Take the main road west into Ebor, the crone directed her, and look for a sign with the crest of a wool merchant that looks like the stars in the setting sun. The crone pointed her staff skyward, where the first stars of the evening had just begun to wink their golden lights awake against the face of the sky, which was azure blue. There you will find a young man grieving because his father has just passed, with a will saying he cannot inherit the family business until he settles down to marry. He will wed the first girl that he sees, and if you hurry, you could be that girl. Her attention caught, the middle sister dropped the hem of the crone's worn velvet cloak. How can you know such things? she asked. Yet before the crone could answer, the eldest sister took off down the road to Ebor as fast as her legs would fly. Her shepherd's crook dropped in the dusty road behind her. Oh, if it's husbands that you can help us find, the youngest sister gushed with an excitement at her eldest sister's good fortune pushing aside her fears of the crone, then that is what I would like to have. I wish to be the most beautiful woman in Ebor and to be married to the most handsome man. She clasped her hands together in rapture. We would drive through the city in a gilded carriage drawn by two dancing white ponies, and I would have a bonny apple-cheeked daughter to bounce on my knee with a head full of golden curls. We would cut such a figure all dressed in silk and satin that everyone in Ebor would snap their heads when we went by. <laughs> it would be more practical to wish for a son, the middle sister scowled. <clears throat> then after your husband dies, you'd have someone's name in which you could keep hold of the carriage and the ponies. And your dashing husband would be less likely to dash off elsewhere searching for another bride to bear him an heir. The old crone cackled. <laughs> Ever girl, she said to the middle sister. Once again, you have recited back to me a lesson life has already taught. For, alas, I had no son, and my husband made sure my only daughter married young to secure her fortune. I know not where she may be now, but I hope that life has treated her more kindly than it has me. Seeing the youngest sister pouting with her arms crossed, the crone turned to her. Nevertheless, beauty, even the remembrance of it, is a thing that lingers forever, and it brings joy to all it touches. Take the same road as your eldest sister. 
Only, when you come to the crossroads just before you enter the city of Ebor, you will see a pear orchard with a stream that empties into the river Foss. Sit down among the blossoms and spread your skirts out around you. Arrayed such, you will be as beautiful as a flower come to life. No man will be able to resist you, and the next one along that road shall be your husband. Oh! the youngest sister exclaimed, her cheeks flushed with embarrassment as she glanced down at her simple wool dress that had been dyed with butternut hulls. But how will he know that I'm beautiful if I do not look as you say? He will surely pass me by dressed as I am. Cackling again, the crone waved her ashen staff twice more. The younger sister's dress became a voluminous gown of blinding white, trimmed with a green velvet bow that accented her tiny waist. The girlish braids of her hair unraveled and then recurled into a cascading halo of womanly spun gold ringlets. She stood open-mouthed, patting her gown and hair to make sure that they were real. The crone gestured with her staff toward the road to Ebor, and the youngest sister dashed toward it. Yet she stopped in her slippered feet just a few steps from the woodline. Wait, she called to the middle sister. What will you wish for? Wouldn't you like to come with me? The middle sister hesitated, amazed at the glowing beauty of her younger sister in her new finery. Yes, but, the middle sister thought for a moment, who will drive these sheep back to father? It's getting late and someone will have to explain where you two have gone so that he doesn't worry. The youngest sister threw her shepherd's crook to the ground in disgust. You're always such an old stick in the mud. I will commission a letter written to father when I get to Ebor on a scroll of white parchment and stamped with the gold seal of my new husband. He will be happy for me. As for those sheep, she finished huffily, they can go jump in the river for all I care. And with that, the youngest sister disappeared into the forest. The middle sister sighed and walked up to the woodline to retrieve her two sisters' crooks from the road in which they lay. <sighs> At least father won't scold me for breaking mine over that boar's head. Here, she handed one of the crooks to the old woman. They're stout oak. You can have one. It wouldn't do to waste breaking your staff over some wild boar's head. It's too special. Looking stunned, the crone accepted the middle sister's gift. Here you are, providing for me, and yet you haven't asked for your own wish yet. I must think about it, the middle sister said. But I can't think properly with a field full of loose sheep. If you'll help me guide them home, you can dine with us. There should be plenty with two less gabbers to feed. Then take one of their beds for the night if you like. The mattresses are straw, but they're not too prickly. In the morning, I can walk you back to wherever you came from, which would be, she trailed off, east of the sun and west of the moon, the old crone replied, grinning. But if you'd like to go there, I can show you the way. The middle sister was pleasantly surprised at how able the crone was in helping her herd the sheep back to their pen for the evening. It was as if the sheep knew without prodding where she wanted them to go and none of them lagged behind, as usual. Although 
Her father was stunned at the news of his eldest and youngest daughters. He thanked the old woman for her generous advice and welcomed her to the table for a bowl of rabbit stew with carrots and potatoes and thick brown bread. The crone gobbled down two helpings and then mopped the bowl clean. Afterward, the crone excused herself while the middle sister and her father cleared up, taking her staff with her. The crone said nothing when she returned, other than that she was tired and about to turn in. However, when the middle sister laid down on her own bed, it was unusually thick and fluffy. Working her finger between the threads of the mattress seams, the middle sister reached in and pulled out a puff of downy white feathers. Glancing over at her sister's bed, she saw the old crone fast asleep, snoring like a contented bear. The next morning, the middle sister was up at dawn, and the crone asked her whether she decided on what she wanted her wish to be. Well, she replied carefully, truly, I could wish for a million different things, but there is only one that I need. I wish for the knowledge to make my crook do as your staff does. The crone shook her head. That wouldn't be much good, I'm afraid, without the staff itself. You'll need both this, she held up the staff, and this, the old woman tapped her temple. However, I will offer you a trade, mine for yours, she gestured at the middle sister's shepherd's crook. Then the knowledge I will give you for free. Wouldn't that leave you without, the middle sister hesitated, afraid to say what she meant. Without the power, the crone finished. Not for long, dear. Only until I get home. There are plenty of ash trees there. I just have to wait for one to fall so that I can make another staff. You can't, the old woman's eyes twinkled mischievously. At least, not yet. When they arrived at the old crone's home place, the middle sister was astonished. It was a crumbling ruin of an old limestone keep surrounded by the remains of a castle wall. "'How long have you lived here?' she asked. "'Since my husband passed and our house was burned,' the crone replied, struggling up the hill. When she reached the heavy wooden doors, the woman had to put her shoulder to them and push hard so that they would open. She motioned for the middle sister to follow her inside, where she moved around more swiftly on the worn but even flagstones. The main open room of the keep was enormous, with many arches leading off into small alcoves, a staircase that wound around the perimeter to the top, and a massive stone fireplace with an iron cauldron. The furniture was sparse, but it looked comfortable and well-made. A bed with a feather mattress and many quilts, on top of which lay an enormous gray cat. A table with a single chair and a series of trunks in all sizes pushed up against the walls. He kept books for Aaron, my husband, and so he was smart enough to hide a great deal of coins under there. The crone pointed to a wool rug in front of the fireplace. The problem is, I'm getting too old to go down the stairs anymore. Or up there. She pointed to the roof, indicating the endless layers of cobwebs floating above them. Then she cackled. <laughs> Never could cook or clean much anyway. We had servants. 
The old woman shuffled over to the hearth and pushed back the rug to reveal a wooden hatch with an iron ring on one side. Propping her staff against the stone hearth, she grasped the ring tightly in both bony hands and jerked backward with all her might. The door flapped open, knocking the old woman backward onto the floor. The middle sister rushed forward to help her up. Hercules! <laughs> she cackled. Don't know my own strength. Then the old woman picked up a stubby candle in a wooden holder from the cluster that she lit on the mantel. Her gray eyes grew serious as she waved it over the steep stone steps leading down into the darkness. As you can see, I have come to a time in my life when I need some assistance. There are some things down there that I would like for you to bring up to me before you go, if it isn't too much trouble. The crone matched the middle sister's gaze and offered her the candle. The girl studied her intently, then looked down into the abyss. There was nothing that she could see but blackness. Taking the candle, the middle sister asked, If you can change dresses from homespun to silk and mattresses from straw to down, then why can't you... She paused, whispering the word. Magic, whatever it is that you want up from the basement. Because I want you to get it for me, the old woman said simply. I understand if you prefer not to, you may take the staff and go, just as I promised. I will teach you the general principles, but the rest I'm sure you'll be able to pick up on your own. The girl nodded, continuing to study the old woman, who offered no further explanation at all. They stood in silence, until finally the girl started down the steps, taking both candle and staff with her. At the end of the staircase, the middle sister saw a room filled with gold of all kinds, sacks of coins of all denominations, some so old they were dry rotten and bursted at the seams, and also ropes of necklaces, stacks of cups and plates, even a few death masks. Just bring up one sack of coins, the crone called, her voice echoing off the walls of the chamber. Take care to hold it in your arms so that it doesn't break. The middle sister tried to pick up one of the sacks, but she knew that it was too heavy. I can only bring up a bit at a time. To this, the woman made no reply, so the girl knelt down and poured out half of one bag of coins into her skirt. Struggling under its weight, she left her candle on the floor by the staircase and waddled back up the steps in the darkness. Depositing all of the coins in a heap beside the trap door, the middle sister started back down the steps again. Once she was out of sight distance, she could hear the old woman scratching around on the floor above, counting the coins. Holding the sack to carefully support its bottom, the middle sister struggled to the top of the steps once more and set the bag down next to the coins that she brought on the first trip, which were now stacked in perfect order. Returning back down the steps a third time, the middle sister heard as the trap door began to creak. She whirled just in time to see it slam shut behind her, blowing out the candle that she left at the bottom of the stairs. She stood, her heart beating out of her chest, in complete darkness.
crawling back up the stairs to the top, she beat her fists against the door and cried out. Use the staff, the crone answered. Through a crack around the trap door, the girl could see the old woman counting her coins feverishly in the candlelight, seemingly oblivious to her plight. Creeping back down the stairs, the middle sister brushed the floor with her hands until she found the staff. Feeling the ends carefully, she turned it right side up and pointed it at the trap door. Not knowing what else to do, she envisioned the door opening and a flood of golden light beaming down into the hole. Ever so slightly, the door began to creak. The girl heard the clink of coins stop as she knew the old woman had ceased counting. Pushing with all the might of her mind, the middle sister made the trap door slam back open. The crone squealed as her stacks of meticulously stacked coins toppled, bouncing down the stairs. How did you open it so quickly? She called, snatching at the coins and nearly falling down into the trap door opening herself. Why did you shut the door? The middle sister countered, stomping up the stairs. As the old woman watched her with hawk-eyed intensity, the girl regathered the coins in her skirt and carried them back upstairs, where she deposited them on the table. There, she helped the crone move the rest of the coins from the floor to the table also. The woman fell on the gold, again, like a crow on a cornfield. "'I need to count. Turn out your pockets,' the old woman said as she began counting. "'I haven't got any pockets,' the girl replied indignantly. What do you take me for? The crone's hands moved feverishly as she counted and recounted the coins again and again. Five hundred, she said at last, with a satisfied look on her weathered face. I'm sorry if I startled you. I needed to be sure. The middle sister knew without asking what the old woman meant. I'm sorry if others have stolen from you in the past, but you don't have to be distrustful and afraid of everyone you meet. That remains to be seen, the crone replied, rising from her single chair. One by one, she unlatched the trunks and opened their lids. The middle sister stepped over for a closer look and could see that they were mostly filled with books. Enormous leather-bound volumes stacked tightly together. Can you read? the crone asked. The girl shook her head. No. Then I will teach you, the crone said. If you will cook and clean for me, and perhaps have your father over to attend to this roof. I have been alone for a very long time now. Reading, like that you hold in your hand, she motioned to the staff that the middle sister only then realized she'd never let go of, is perhaps the most powerful magic. However, she raised a crooked finger, you must take care that you do not come to live for books and nothing else. Otherwise, books are all you will have. She gestured around the expanse of the room, her gray eyes coming to rest once more on the girl. I plan to give you all of this, if we can come to trust one another. The girl was startled. Thank you, but why? Why not? The old woman cackled. Then she grew serious. 
because you have the one thing that I have always lacked, at least until I was very old. Kindness. The reason for that, I am not sure. You've no real reason to have it that I can tell. So perhaps that's something that you can teach me. And so, for the next decade, that's what they did. The old woman taught the middle sister her magic. In return, she helped cook and clean and asked her father up to repair the roof of the keep. Over time, she convinced her father to sell his smaller farm that, so that he could purchase the keep and its much larger lands, expanding their flocks and their mutual fortunes. With a man's name on the deed, they could buy and sell without secrecy. No one except those three ever knew that the keep's farms were running so well because of the money hidden beneath its floors. In time, the middle sister brought the old keep back to life as a real home, with dozens of rooms filled with the finest furniture to be found. She had a crest designed for the family, with a boar's head on a green field to commemorate their good luck, and ordered fashionable traveling gowns of green and gold silk for herself. She never feared traveling alone to the markets, for she carried her magical staff with her, always. On one of these many trips into the city of Ebor, she met another young shipping merchant, and they decided to marry. He commissioned a portrait painted of her to commemorate the marriage, and she marveled at how ever afterward people called her a beauty, when before she'd always considered herself plain. A year later, they had a son, whom she named Everett, once more in honor of the boar who had chased good fortune her way. Both her father and the old woman glowed with as much health and happiness as good food and good company could bring to their ages. And so the middle sister wanted for only one thing in her life, to find out what had happened to her other two sisters, because, contrary to what she'd vowed, even the younger sister had never written. Once she began searching, they were easy enough to find. Her oldest sister had been working right there in Ebor, carding and spinning wool. After her wealthy husband died young, a child nephew inherited the business because their union had produced no heirs. Never satisfied with their only son's hasty marriage, the remaining family had cast the oldest sister out, with the offer of what they considered to be a more charitable option than committing her to a nunnery. The offer to work for them. Thus, while she arrived stiff-handed and sullen back on her sister's doorstep, the oldest sister had lost nothing but time and a fortune which had never really belonged to her to begin with. Although she lived in London, the youngest sister was not so lucky. The fine young gentleman with the golden carriage and the white horses had indeed picked her up in the Paragrove, married her, and carried her all the way to the king's court. However, as soon as their daughter was born, he abandoned her, not so much out of cold-heartedness, but necessity. He'd overspent his inheritance on travel and gambling and desperately chased the favors of wealthy older ladies of the court to pay his debts. Having no other means of supporting herself, the youngest sister was forced to resort to selling her own favors so that she could keep her daughter in food and clothes. She arrived back at her sister's home more somber, yet filled with gratitude that her middle sister had spared her own daughter, who did indeed 
have beautiful golden hair. And Everett, the middle daughter's only son, did he become the lord of the keep and the founding namesake of the family's house? No, he did not. After he grew up, Everett wanted to go elsewhere, and so he did. His mother did not try to dissuade him. She taught him every bit of the magic that she'd learned from the old woman who'd long since passed, poured every word of knowledge into his brain from all of the books she'd treasured for years. And then on the day that Everett left, she gave him the staff that the crone had given to her so long ago. She could always make another one now, from one of the fallen ash trees in the old forest around the keep. As she watched Everett ride away down the road, the middle sister noticed a rustling at the edge of the woodline. A massive boar came snorting out into the road and turned to look at her. One of its tusks, as long as her arm, was broken off near the snout, and the boar was so old its hair had gone almost completely white. Down his long nose, she could see a pale, jagged scar. Then the beast turned, trotting down the road after Everett's horse, until both the boar and the boy were out of sight. This is the end of the short story, The Wild Boar of Ebor, by Vivian Catfield. Be sure to tune in next week for another new story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>